0: Alright, um, we're going to show you a video, uh, this, I'll talk over it, um, I don't know if this ever pops up for you on your Facebook feed, but I am getting a lot of this particular ad, lots and lots. Have you seen this one? Now, usually I, I don't take much notice of um, things like this, but I, I did for this one, and it could be because of the name of this product, it's Co. So I took notice, Uh, but I also took notice because um, I am not the one who generally does the cleaning at home, so I reckon I'm pretty easily, you know, duped into products like this. Uh, How do you feel, I wonder, uh, when you see things like this that basically claim to be the one solution to all of your cleaning or whatever problems? You fill in the blank. Yeah, you you know those kind of products? You have this one, and you can throw all the other ones away. How do you feel about things like that? Well, whether you like them, whether you're gullible like me and end up... I haven't bought this one yet, though I'm really tempted to. Um, I want you to know today that there is one thing that is key to a richer and deeper experience in your Christian life. How do you feel when I say that? Put out the statement like that. That there is one thing that would be a key to a richer and deeper experience in probably all of our Christian lives. And here's the thing, most of us, including myself, haven't got it. Sounds a bit too good to be true. Well, that's what I thought until I got into these two chapters from 2 Corinthians. Why don't we pray and let's see what God has to say to us. And hopefully we will all discover what that key is. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would in spite of the fact that some of us are in person, some of us are on Zoom. Still, Father, this is your word. We are your people, and we long to hear your voice. So please, Holy Spirit, use me, even through Zoom, to speak to us all today. Amen. Okay, so what is that key thing? I know I'm sounding like a salesman, right? What is the key thing? Well, you have to wait, because we're going to firstly look at the context. Uh, so let's have a look at the context Sorry, I'm not able to control. Okay. Uh, We're continuing in the book of 2 Corinthians. We kind of started early in the year. We're coming back and finishing it. Chapter 8, you'll need to know there is a dramatic change in topic. Now, if you remember... This is a letter that was a deeply personal one by Paul the Apostle to a church that he founded in ancient Greece in the city of Corinth, and he invested really deeply into them, invested into them personally, pastorally, emotionally, but he and they had a really rocky relationship. Yeah, While he was away from them, They had turned away and lost confidence in him and put their confidence instead in some other leaders who came along, and these leaders were really outwardly impressive, and we'll see more of that next couple of weeks, but they were spiritually very shallow. Now, in this letter to Corinthians, Paul's been trying to make things right with them. By chapter 8, where we're up to, things seem to be on the right track, okay? The relationship seems to be mending, and because this is the case, Paul is now making arrangements to send his co-worker Titus back to Corinth, and Titus will carry this letter, this letter of 2 Corinthians, but also we read in chapter 8, Titus, with the help of a couple of others, will be in charge of administering a financial aid collection. Now here we have a tale of three churches, all right? So this collection, you'll need to know, was for the struggling Jewish Christians in the founding church, Jerusalem, that's where it all started. In Jerusalem, due to famine, possibly other reasons like persecution, they were really, really poor, really in need. And in the ancient world, if you're really poor, you were basically starving. And Paul was rounding up non-Jewish churches to help the mother church, Jerusalem. And then the second church that's involved in the tale of three churches, the Corinthians, well, they were in a region of ancient Greece called Achaea. They had pledged their help. They were, by and large, a lot wealthier. Now it was time, Paul says, to follow through on your pledge. But as I said, there were three churches involved, Jerusalem, Corinth. Thirdly, there were churches in Macedonia. Have a look at the next slide. Technically, there were actually three churches in Macedonia. You'll see that's the region of Macedonia. When these Macedonian churches heard that the Corinthians, down to their south, pledged, they were inspired to also help out. Now, what they did was so extraordinary that Paul uses them in these chapters as a model for what he's going to talk about. And what he's going to go on to talk about is that key that I was mentioning at the beginning. So what is that key? You want to know what is the one thing that could really enrich and deepen your Christian life in almost every way? It's this. Financial generosity. Financial generosity. Are you surprised? I was. But it's true. See, if we really get this and if we really apply it, like the Macedonian Christians did, our Christian lives will never be the same, guaranteed. So I hope you're paying attention. Now, to get this key, we need to grab hold of the key verse. By the way, we're going to put our outlines online from now on. Uh, through the Bible app, you can go to go.swec.org.au slash outline, and you can either access it on your web browser, or if you log in, you can connect it to your Bible app. It's all free. Anyway, verse 9 of chapter 8, have a look at the key verse. Next slide. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. That is the key verse. So you want to be generous, like the Macedonians. Paul says you got to look to Jesus. And Paul also says in, in Philippians, by the way, Philippians two, next verse, uh, next slide. Remember these verses. Who Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, you got the picture. Jesus did all of this. He became poor. He lowered himself. He made himself nothing. He takes the nature of a servant, literally slave. Why? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, so that through his poverty we might become rich. He did it so that you and I, could have what we all need the most. What's that? Forgiveness. A restored relationship with God, eternal life. All of those are ours because of what Jesus did. Now, just as a side, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus or you're still on your journey towards being one, this is what Jesus did for you. You can respond today because He's offering it to you. Put your trust in Him. Turn to Him as Lord. Today, this offer what he's done is for you. Now, why this is important isn't just because this is a great motivation to be generous. It's all, it is, it's is—it's great motivation, but it's also important because this verse actually opens up the whole passage. You see, if Jesus did this to make us rich, and that's what he's saying, right? Through his poverty, you might become rich. I hope you see, therefore, that all of a sudden we now need to see riches and wealth in a completely different light, yeah? If he did this to make us rich, Jesus didn't do this so that we could all be financially rich in this life. Because if he did, then it wouldn't make any sense that the Macedonian Christians were still dirt poor and that they gave out of their poverty, yeah? Now, Jesus is not saying, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will all become financially rich. This is not the prosperity gospel, no. Jesus is showing us that even our idea of what is rich and wealthy now needs to be completely redefined. And once you see that, what this passage says about why be generous, all of a sudden makes perfect sense. You see, being generous with our money, when motivated by the true definition of richness, will actually make you much richer. Right, and that's why this is the key to a better, deeper, richer life. See, to be truly rich, is to be rich in three things. Rich in grace, rich in fellowship, and rich in worship. And being financially generous will give you riches in all these areas. Have a look at the next slide. So, chapter 8, verse 9, key verse. If there is a key word in this chapter, it's the word grace. Yeah? In fact, it comes up eight times in these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9. It's part of that key verse, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also right at the beginning, chapter 8, verse 1, and right at the end, in chapter 9, verse 14. You know it's an important word if it bookends it, right? When talking about giving, whether it's the Macedonian example, or what he's now calling on the Corinthians to follow up and do in their pledge, or when he's talking about what Jesus has done, Paul uses again and again the word grace. Now, those of you familiar with the definition of grace, it may seem like, the too obvious. I mean, grace means generosity. So by showing generosity, I'm showing grace. That seems really obvious. Well, it's true. But I want you to look closer. Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that when the Macedonian Christians gave, it wasn't their grace that was in operation. But notice, whose grace? The grace that God gave them. It's not their grace that made them generous. It's God's grace that made them generous. Isn't that interesting? Because grace here and elsewhere, in fact, in the New Testament, doesn't just mean generosity or undeserved kindness. Grace, when it comes from God, is a blessing. You got that? Grace is a blessing, and that's why we say the blessing It's actually from the end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. That blessing of grace is a blessing. See, grace is an undeserved, generous blessing from God. But more than that, grace is also a blessing that empowers, that gives you the ability to act, that gives you power for living. Empowering grace is, in fact, Behind the idea translated as spiritual gifts. Just to give you a little bit of New Testament Greek. Grace is charis. Spiritual gifts is charismata. It's basically the same word. All right? When God gives you spiritual gifts, he's giving you an empowering blessing of grace. Now you see that in verse 7. Have a look there. Next slide. But since you excel in everything, and he's going to list some spiritual gifts. Faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness in the love we have kindled in you. See that you excel also in the grace of giving. You see, you have one set of graces, now excel in the other grace. So, if you like, here's a good definition of grace here in 2 Corinthians 8. Next slide. Grace, you can see it as undeserved and empowering blessing. Right? That's a nice little definition, that's a fuller understanding. You see, Paul says in verse 7, both the Corinthian and the Macedonian churches have evidence of God's grace in the empowering sense. The Corinthians, as we know already, they've been blessed with so many impressive spiritual gifts. That is God's grace to them. Undeserved, empowering blessing. But, he says, look at your brother churches up north in Macedonia because what they have as grace is even more Impressive. Look at the next verse, from verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people. How embarrassing is it for you who are Chinese and you go to a restaurant and your parents and your aunties and uncles fight for the bill? So embarrassing, right? Every Asian kid has grown up watching their parents argue for the bill with some guests. That's what the Macedonians were doing. They were fighting for the bill. They begged Paul, please let us give. And Paul presumably didn't ask them to give because they were so dirt poor. He didn't want to put them in more poverty and... They said, no, we must give. That, you see, is God's grace in action. This is the power of God's blessing in the Macedonians. Not in spiritual gifts that were impressive like the Corinthians, but in extraordinary generosity. Generosity in spite of poverty and suffering. They were also being persecuted, by the way. When every instinct would have been to protect and secure what little you had, these Christians begged to give Now isn't that amazing grace in operation And I wonder given the choice of grace spiritual gifts or generosity which one would we naturally choose Probably 100% of us would choose give me the spiritual gifts Yeah So here's the question if you want to experience more of God's grace God's empowering blessing in your life then you got to be like the we got to be like the Macedonians Isn't it rich and wonderful to be like the Macedonians, to have this much grace in your life? Here's the thing about God's grace. God's grace is like water. Sounding a bit like Bruce Lee. God's grace is like water. Water must flow into a pond and flow outwards. Okay? That's... Sorry. Sorry, Bruce. He's dead. Anyway... Water has got to flow in and out. If water doesn't have an outlet, it becomes stagnant. Here's the thing. Experiencing God's grace, if you want to experience more of His grace, if you want to experience a fuller grace of blessing, empowering blessing in your life, it's got to come in and it's got to go out, right? His empowering blessing must flow out of our lives. And the more we do that, the more like the Macedonians, we will be really rich in grace. But the next one. Grace, second one, fellowship. I wonder what you think of when you think of the word great, or well, the words great fellowship. What do you think of? Is it some massive meal that you share with your CG group? Uh, a games night that you play, hanging out together, singing some songs together, uh, maybe, you know, church camp. What do you think of when you think of great fellowship? Here's the thing. Two times this word, translated as fellowship, is used in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And probably neither time it's used, or in the rest of the New Testament, is going to match up with what we define as great fellowship. That's going to be the surprising thing. The word fellowship, uh, Greek word koinonia, is also sometimes translated as participation or partnership. If you like, it means a deep sharing, a sharing on a very deep level. So, in chapter 8, verse 4, you get that use of koinonia. Macedonians, they begged for the privilege of sharing koinonia, fellowship, in the service of the Lord's people. So, by financially giving to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, fellowship happened because a bond was created. By giving, they were saying, Your well being matters to us. We don't have very much, but we want to share in your struggles. You are not alone. But you see, that goes both ways, that bond, because the Jerusalem Christians will now pray and give thanks for these brothers and sisters in Macedonia in a way they've never prayed before. Look at the next verse, next slide. Chapter 9, verse 14. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace, is that word again? God has given you. See, it goes both ways. That's how beautiful fellowship can be. When it's true biblical fellowship, it goes both ways. Now, you don't just see that here. You see that all over Paul's letters. If you've read the book of Philippians, by the way, the Philippians were one of those Macedonian churches. Paul has such fondness for that church because of their fellowship, partnership, koinonia, sharing in the gospel, he says, from the very first day until now, because they kept sending him financial aid, again, in their poverty. But when that happens, fellowship deepens joy grows. Prayer is multiplied. Did you know that when we financially partner with our missionaries, that is what's happening? We are not just sending money, are we? We are deepening fellowship. That's what's happening. And that's why they, you know, do videos for us and write to us with such fondness. And when they pray for us, they do with such fondness because fellowship has been deepened. Did you know that when you give regularly to your church, that is also what's created? Please never think of your financial giving to church as paying for services. You are not paying for your pastor's services. You are not a consumer. In fact, by financially supporting your church, you are moving from being a consumer to being a shareholder. That's what's happening. You are saying the mission of my church matters to me and I will do my part in ensuring that this mission can grow. And we as your church leaders, your pastors especially, we know and love this, that you're partners with us. We don't feel alone. We know that you're right invested in this as much as we are. And so we love and serve you and pray for you with even more joy. That is richness and fellowship, is it not? There's a joy of deeper relationships that's created when we financially partner. Do you long for relationships like that? Do you long for fellowship like that? Be generous. That's the key. Thirdly, worship. The next way in which richness is richer. These chapters use lots of words and ideas that actually come straight from the realm of worship, especially from the Old Testament. Now, it's especially clear in chapter 9, verse 12, but I'm going to use the ESV. Have a look at the slide um, because it translates it even more clearer, clearer. It says in the ESV, for the ministry of this service, both of those words are going to be words from the Old Testament. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. All right, those two words, they are words used in the Old Testament of priestly duties in the temple. Did you know that by financially giving, that is a ministry? Did you know that it is like a priestly service to God? It's even clearer in Philippians, Philippians 4.18. Look at the next slide. Paul is talking about the support that they sent him. And he says, they, this support, this financial generosity is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. See, the grace of giving, financial partnership is a form of worship. In my backyard, there is a weed, and I don't even know what's called, but it's one of those creeping vine ones. I don't know if you know what they are, what they do, but this one is so hard to remove because it wraps itself around, you know, not just the branches and the trunk of the other plants. It also kind of digs into the roots. It's horrible, this weed, this vine. Money does that in our lives, doesn't it? Money is a great servant, but a horrible master. Money taps into our deepest desires, doesn't it? For approval, for security, for pleasure, for control, for self-worth. You find an idol in your life, and chances are money and materialism is one of the primary ways that you are tempted to serve that idol. Am I right? Right. And there's a reason that Jesus spoke about greed more than any other sin. Did you know that? There is a reason money is called a root of all evil in 1 Timothy. And that greed is called idolatry in Colossians. And so you see, that's why being generous can actually deepen our worship of the true God. Because done rightly, money goes from being a servant of idols to being a servant of God. When we release our money for the sake of others, we are also releasing, don't you see, idols in our hearts to God. We then look to God to satisfy our deepest needs. And what happens? Worship is richer. Worship is deepened. Of course it will. And if that's not enough, also in chapter 9, verse 12, this ministry of giving, this worship also, it says, overflows in many expressions of thanks to God. Giving multiplies praise. It's an act of worship and becomes a catalyst for more worship. So back to my point. Did you know that financial generosity can do all that? It can make you rich in so many unexpected ways, truly rich. It'll multiply God's grace in your life. It'll deepen your fellowship with others. It'll expand your worship. So let me ask you, are you truly rich? And do you want to become even richer where it counts, where it'll matter for all eternity? Because that is the key. And it's been given to us. So let's apply it practically. My third point. The how and the what. There's so many things in this chapter. Two chapters actually. We only just did a quick overview. Please read it in your own time because we didn't get to cover this in CGs. Let me finish by asking though, what does it tell us about the how we give and the what we give towards? So firstly, the how. There's a couple of points there. Firstly is cheerfully. Next slide. Let me show you chapter 9 verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. A sermon illustration I read, probably not true. Anyway, it's a good one. A guy... um At church, they're passing around the plate. Um, Remember when we used to do that, pass around the... Yeah. And uh, a guy mistakenly puts in a $100 bill instead of a $5 bill. In America, they all look the same. They're all the same size, all the same color. That's what he did. Afterwards, he kind of sheepishly goes up to the usher and says, I'm sorry, I was supposed to put in a $5. I put in a $100 instead. Can can I swap it back? The usher obviously says, no, we can't do that. You know, just for transparency and honesty, you can't do that. And the guy goes... I guess I will receive my reward in heaven for the $100. And the usher said, no, no, no. Your reward in heaven will be $5 because that's how much you gave in your heart. See, God doesn't want or need our money, does He? He wants our hearts. And that's what made the Macedonians so rich. They gave themselves, verse 5, firstly to the Lord and then to us. God loves a cheerful giver. How is your heart? As you give, and especially if you set up like regular giving, is it cheerful or is it reluctant? When you set up your net banking every year or whenever it is you review yourself, are you like, oh gosh, I can't believe it, got to give again. With pain, I'm going to click the set up direct deposit. Or do you give it joyfully? How is the status of our hearts? Because if it's not cheerful, then maybe there is a blockage in our experience of God and His grace. Maybe something that we need to examine and bring to God. Secondly, the how. Proportionately. Right? Cheerfully, proportionately. Once you have the willingness, then how much you give is a matter of how much you have. Look at verse 12. Next slide. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to one what, what one does not have. Remember, the Macedonians would not have given a lot compared with the others, would they? But it's like the widow that put in the two coins, all that she had. God recognizes the little that they did give in proportion to the little that they had. And it was a lot in proportion. How much to give? Well, many will set a percentage. There's something called tithe that's mentioned in the Old Testament. By the way, it's not mentioned in the New Testament. 10%. And some people say, well, that's the rule of giving. Now, I think the tired 10% is a good guide. In many situations, it might be a good starting point. But I actually think when it becomes a rule or a law, it actually hinders, actually hinders generosity. Have you thought of this? See, I doubt the Macedonians only gave 10%. They gave beyond their ability. Also, here's the thing. If you give 10%, what happens when your income increases? I mean, yes, the proportion of what you you give increases because it's 10% of a greater amount, but it also then allows you to increase your standard of living or what you keep and your disposable income almost infinitely too. Let me give you, an example. for example, when you were earning $20,000 a year, if you gave 10%, that would leave you with $18,000. Say you're now earning $200,000 a year. By giving 10% now, you're all of a sudden left with how much? $180,000. Say you're only $2 million a year. Give me 10% now leaves you with $1.8 million. And the question is, do I then get to keep the 90% for myself as my income continues to rise and I just keep buying bigger houses, bigger TVs, bigger cars? You know, the pastor and preacher and revivalist John Wesley, as a young man, when he was dirt poor, he figured out, I only need this much a year to live on. For the rest of his life, he lived on that. And by the way, towards the end of his life, he was earning quite a lot of money. He wrote books. His sermons were published. He was getting pretty wealthy. He gave away everything and still lived on the same amount, probably indexed to GDP. I don't know, something. All right, but he gave the rest away. When he died, there were only a few dollars equivalent in his pocket because he figured out that I don't need that much to live on. So here's a challenge. Have you ever thought about every time you increase your income, get a pay rise, get a new job, just get married and now have two incomes, rather than stick on the same percentage, have you thought, as my income increases, I'm also going to increase the percentage? All right, that's the how, let's go to the what. What? What do I give towards? From one perspective, giving to anyone in need is a good thing, right? It's good giving. But then there are so many options. So what are some guiding principles? Now, well, let me give you a couple. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. It's a nice verse here that I think just gives us a bit of guideline. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. All right. All people. But especially to those who belong to the family of believers. While we want to meet the needs of anyone and everyone we can, we want to especially support, firstly, family. All right. Look at the next slide. Our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, our spiritual family, come first. That is a principle in the New Testament and other places. So that means those among us who've lost jobs because of COVID or have financial needs, right? They should be our responsibility first and foremost as a local church family. And then outward from our local church family to other churches who are God's people. Family should be our first priority, spiritual family. But then the second is this, gospel. Gospel. Now, at this point, you might think, hang on, Um, helping the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem seemed to me like supplying immediate needs. It wasn't like supporting gospel workers or furthering the work of missions. How is it gospel related? Well, here's the thing. You may not realize this, but Paul spent so much energy and time on this collection on behalf of the Jerusalem Christians. He did it for a reason. It wasn't just about their immediate needs. There was also something going on where he was inviting Gentile churches, non-Jewish churches, to give to Jewish Christians. And for him, that was a really important demonstration of gospel unity at a time and in a place where Gentiles and Jews, even within their own churches, could have been very divided. He wanted to use this as a symbol of gospel unity, and he wanted to see this as a sort of giving back. Because these Gentile Christians are there because of the Jerusalem church that started it all. There were gospel motivations, you see. When it comes to our giving, keep in mind that the world will not give towards gospel-related ventures. I mean, Bill Gates is so generous, isn't he? But he's not going to fund missionaries or even the work of compassion. Now, of course, that means partnering with with the mission of your local church, Supporting the work of your pastors and missionaries goes without saying. But, you know, even when it comes to giving towards poverty relief, have a think about prioritizing organizations that may create gospel opportunities through their natural programs. All right? So, again, have a look at the next slide. I'll give you a couple of examples. Compassion. We had Compassion Sunday a couple of weeks ago. Always great. They're relieving genuine needs, but they're also introducing kids to Jesus um, if you're wanting to, by the way, give help through COVID because of what's happened in COVID, a friend's church, a, a church right in the center of Melbourne called cross Culture Church, uh, have been helping out migrants and refugees and international students uh, through their food relief programs, actually made the news. And the great thing is not only are they doing that, they also have, it's come out of their program for migrants and especially international students. So there's a direct link between the contacts that they're making through this food relief As well as their own gospel ventures. So, if you wanna support something that's COVID related, uh, hop onto Cross Culture. They need donations to keep supplying the food for free. All right, wrapping up. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the billionaire Chuck Freeney. Have a look at the uh, slide, I'll show you a picture. He made the news uh, a week ago because he finally managed to give away his fortune $7.5 billion. $7.5 billion he gave to charity throughout his lifetime. And he is famous because he models um, to people like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, people you might have heard of, who have all pledged to that they would all also, because of Chuck, give away all of their fortune to charity before they died. And Chuck finally achieved that last week. He's still alive, but he finally gave away $7.5 billion, and he says he could not be happier. He was so happy. It's given him so much joy. And it's not surprising that non-Christians have also discovered the joy of generosity. But you see, even more is promised for you and me if we are God's people. Remember, God is promising that the more we cheerfully and joyfully release, the more He will multiply and enrich us in the ways that really matter. See, God is saying to you today, will you believe me on this? Will you trust me on this? Your hoarding and your materialism and your wealth, it's actually robbing you of true riches of deeper joys. So how about it? Will you trust me? Will you be exceedingly generous and come and share in my joy and the richness of what I have to offer you? Will you? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would release in us so much grace, the grace of generosity, so that we might share in true richness and Jesus might be honored. Amen. We have some discussion questions. By the way, it's online on on the Bible app, Uh, but have a look at the next slide. Just give you a couple of discussion questions for your groups later on. Uh, What does your attitude to and the use of money reveal about what's important to you? Does it reveal idols? I know it does for me. And what might being more generous mean for you in your current situation? Everyone's situation is different, so what would it mean for you? All right, thanks.